I want to draw your attention to our text this morning. We're in Luke chapter 10, and so if you have a Bible or you ha- and you'll see it up on the screen as well, but join me in Luke chapter 10. And, and last week we left Jesus um, in our text. We, we left him interacting with the 70. Pastor Matt was taking us through that, that section of, of chapter 10, and it, and it concluded with the 70 coming back and they unpacking their experience. And Jesus is, is talking with those, those 70, and likely there are many others that are around, around that area that were a part of it. But then in verse 20, 23 of chapter 10, it tells us that Jesus turns to his disciples and he has a private conversation with them. He begins to address them. You can see that there in chapter 10, verse 23. He begins to tell them something that he intends for their ears. And in this setting, in this moment, if you look at verse 25, which is where we're, we'll pick up our text this morning. In 25, we're told that there's, a, there's an expert. Just then, in that moment, in the moment when Jesus is having this conversation, he turns from the bigger crowd and he turns to his 12 and he begins to tell them something. This expert in the law, that's how Luke records um, who he is. He's an expert in the law. Just then, he stands up to test Jesus. He interrupts this moment that Jesus is having with his disciples. Who is this, this expert in the law? Well, in Mark and, and Matthew, we, we have moments that could be this moment. Likely, he was a scribe. The scribes had kind of taken over for the Levites. They were the ones that were studying uh, the, 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 the Torah, the, the old, what we know as the Old Testament. They were translating it. They were interpreting it. This young man today would probably be a rabbi, you know, a modern-day rabbi, someone who studied the law, interpreted it, and then passed that on to other people how to live that. And Luke uses the phrase expert, someone who knew the law well. And he stands up to test Jesus. And he says this, here's his question, or here's his test. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do in order to experience eternal life? And Jesus responds to this question. And, and let me pause because it's so easy to, to forget already what we've already talked about. I want you to be in this moment. I want you to be there with Jesus. The 70 have come back and they're they're, they're this, just this bag of emotions, this hot mess, if you will, of all that had happened, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And they're, they're, they're decompressing. They're, go, they're debriefing. They're going through this, uh, what had happened to them. And they're interacting with their, their rabbi, with their savior, soon-to-be savior. And they're talking about their experiences. And Jesus sees a moment where he intentionally wants to address them privately by the fact that this man stood up, it tells me that many people were seated. There was just this scene going on where Jesus is interacting with his disciples. And then this man stands up, <coughs> excuse me, I have a question. Maybe he didn't even preface the question. Maybe he just jumped in. Teacher, rabbi, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if I'm there, if I'm thinking that I'm there, I'm going back, I'm thinking that all eyes turn to this man and there's a whole bag of emotions now because he just interrupted the rabbi. He just interrupted Jesus. And there's all this, this, this emotion and all these thoughts that are happening in this setting. And Jesus turns to this man, this expert in the law, and he says, interestingly enough, well, what's written in the law? Does Jesus know who this man is? Nod your heads. I can't see your heads, but nod your heads. Because we know that he does. 
he's an expert in the law. And Jesus throws it back to this, this man and he says, well, what is written in the law? Or he's saying, what do you believe the law teaches to answer this question? What is found in the law? How do you read it? How do you interpret it? Now, this reminds us of something we know about Jesus as we walk through Luke this, this year, bringing Jesus into focus. We've already learned that Jesus loves to answer a question with a question. And that's what he does here. He knows exactly what the intent of this question is, this man. He knows that he's testing him. He knows what's at stake. And he says, well, what's written in the law, expert of the, in the law? How do you interpret it? Or how would you answer the question that you just asked me? And he answered, <coughs> he's an expert in the law. This, this, is, this is like the moment he's been waiting for his whole life. He's got a huge crowd. Everybody's there to, to see how smart he is and to hear his answer. And so Jesus says, how would you interpret the law? What do you think is written there and what it means for this question that you've asked? And he answers, <coughs> love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor... Love your neighbor as yourself. See, this guy really did know the law. He's quoting from two different passages, and many of you know this. The first part comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, where we read, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. This was a passage that a, a, a faithful Jew would refer to, quote, say out loud just about every single day to set the tone for the day. My my task today as a, as a Jew, as a follower of Jehovah, is to love God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my strength. And then he combines it with a, a passage in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it says, Don't take revenge or bear a grudge against members of your community, but love your neighbor as yourself. So his answer to Jesus is to go back to the law, and, and again, this is, this is, there's some interpretation here, right? Because Jesus says, well, what's written in the law? That's a big text. He doesn't tell him where to go. He says, how do you read it? What do you think is the answer to your questions? And in question, and interesting, to me it's interesting that this expert in the law goes to Deuteronomy and, Le and Leviticus and says, we need to love God more than anything else, and we need to love our neighbor as we want to be loved. We, we need to love them as we want to be loved. And Jesus, it tells us, Luke says, Jesus says, good job. If Jesus was a kindergarten teacher, he would get a star next to his name or a tip or an untip or whatever the, the method is today. He said, good job. Yes, you've answered correctly, he told him. And he simply says this, live it. Look at your Bible. Do this and you will live. Do that. Your question to me, Jesus says, was how do I inherit eternal life? How do I experience eternal life? How do I experience a relationship, a right relationship with God? What does it take? And Jesus says, what do you think? What have, in all your studying, what have you found? And he says, well, I think it's this. And Jesus says, you're right. Now go live that. Go do it. Go live your life loving God more than anything else and love your neighbor as you want to be loved. But wanting to justify himself, ding, 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 ding. Okay, here's the real, here's the real, here's the reveal. Because we're told by Luke that he wants to test Jesus. 
He wants to test him, but we're not told what it is that he's really looking for. Is he trying to shame Jesus? Is he trying to expose Jesus? Is he trying to elevate himself above Jesus as a rabbi? What exactly is his intent? Why is he standing up in the middle of a teaching session of this other rabbi, this young rabbi from Nazareth? Why does he interrupt it to test him? Luke says it's right here. He wanted to justify himself. He wanted to literally prove himself right. Let me, let me interpret that a little bit. He wanted to have Jesus endorse the way he was living, that the way he was living was measuring up to loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbors yourself. And Jesus knew this. He knew this. He knows all things about the heart. He knows all things about the mind. I don't want to scare you. Stop and think about that for a minute. He knows everything that's in your mind right now. I can't see you. There's only a few of us here in this, this physical space. I can't see those that are watching. So I certainly can't know what's in your mind. I can't know what's in your heart. I can't even, I don't even know what you're doing. I don't know if you're drinking a cup of coffee, eating breakfast, if you're chasing a kid around the room, you know, taking the dog for a walk and you're on your, I don't know. I have no idea what you're doing. And I certainly don't know what's in your mind or in your heart, but Jesus does. And again, it's not to scare us, but it's just to wake us up to the reality that there's no fooling Jesus. You want to see Jesus clearly? Then see this. He knows everything that's in our, in our heads and in our hearts. And he still loves us. He still calls us to walk with him. But don't miss this truth that Jesus knows all things that's in our head and in our heart. He knows, he knows what the person sitting next to you doesn't know. And he knows this man's mind. He knows his heart. He knew this man was trying to justify himself when he asked Jesus this. He says, so, now I can't help myself. I, I, there's, no, there's no recordings that we have from that day, obviously, so I can't tell you what he sounded like. I can only, you know, project myself onto him. But if I'm him, I'm going, so, <laughs> who's my neighbor? Now, I don't know. Again, he, it's different time, different culture, different person. But all we have is the, the, the words of his question, and who is my neighbor. You can say it the way that makes sense to you. Put the inflection in there. Put the attitude in there of what you know so far about this man in this moment. Okay, fair enough. Love God with all I am and love my neighbors myself. Okay, yes, we're in agreement. But who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? Certainly can't be the Romans, right? The Romans aren't our neighbors. They're, they're, they occupy us. They've conquered us. They're, they're the bad guys. They're the government. They're this over-oppressive government that's telling us what we can and cannot do. Messing up everything as, as, as the people of God with our worship and our temple and our way of life and our sacrifices. They've put all these restrictions on. Certainly, you're not talking about the Romans, the Gentiles, the dogs. Certainly, you're not talking about the Samaritans that live north of us and have been over the centuries have been moving in and they've been marrying and now you know they don't even know their heritage they don't you know they, they don't even belong here many of them took our land when we were you know in babylon and certainly not them we don't even want them in our neighborhood certainly they aren't the neighbors you're talking about right jesus and how about these lawbreakers how about these people who are jews in name only but they're not obeying god they're not living by the law I know the law. I know what the law says. I know what it, what it looks like in life. And I'm surrounded by Jewish people that are lawbreakers. They don't follow the law. Certainly those aren't 
Abram. See, he had already, I think, he'd already in his mind, he knew this, this dialogue, he, he understood where this was going, where it would go when he asked the question, and he'd already decided in his own heart and mind who his neighbors were. Anybody else do that? He'd already, he'd already established, this is, I, I'm to love God, and I'm to love my neighbor the way um, I want to be loved. That's what I believe the, old, the, the law says, the Old Testament scriptures say. Jesus says, you're right. And here's my, here's my four neighbors, the four people I like. So exactly who is my neighbor? Now, I don't, we don't know what he expected Jesus to say. Uh, it could have been that he expected Jesus to be dumbfounded and, and not have an answer or don't know. I don't think he expected what he heard. Luke is the only one that records this part of the interaction. And he starts by saying this, Jesus took up the question. Jesus embraced the question. Jesus was, will you agree with me? Jesus was ready for the question. And he knew exactly what he wanted to say. And he tells a parable. Well, again, only Luke. Luke records this for us, this parable that Jesus gives in response to the question, who is my neighbor? Jesus says this to this expert in the law. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Later, Jerome, the historian Jerome, would call this the bloody way. It's about 13 miles. Um, it was known, it became more and more so known for violence and for, for robbery and even for murder. It was a path that a lot of people had to take. It's about a 3,000-foot descent that you take from Jerusalem to Jericho. And there was a man leaving Jerusalem, and he's headed to Jericho in this dangerous road, and he fell into hands of robbers. Now, this would have sounded very familiar to his crowd. Oh, oh yeah, I heard the other day. But yeah, they knew exactly. Even though it's a parable that he's telling, it's set in the physical realm where people would understand it and connect to it. They stripped him. They took his clothes. They beat him. They knocked him out or they hurt him so that he couldn't, you know, stop them or follow them. They beat him up and they fled. They took his stuff and they ran away. And they left him half dead, seriously injured. So he's laying there on the side of the road, this, this dangerous road. And a priest happens to be going down that same road. He has business from Jerusalem to Jericho. And when he sees him, he sees this man lying on the side of the road. He passes by on the other side of the road. He has to intentionally go out of his way to, to bypass what he sees, this pile of, of a human, bloody and beat up and naked, laying in the dirt in the ditch on the side of the road. There's no, I, I emphasize that because there's no accident here. There's no, well, I didn't see him. He intentionally avoids him. He passes by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite... When he arrived at the place and saw him, this, this phrase is more means that he stopped. The first one, the priest, the, the one who represent is a, is a their, their job is to be a mediator between God and man, to serve man on behalf of God, to bring man and God together through the sacrifices, through worship, sees it and makes sure, make sure that he goes around so that there's no contact. And maybe it's a little easier for him to ignore what's happening. The second person, in the way it's described, is a Levite. This is, this is someone who serves. This is, a, this is a deacon. This is someone who serves the needs of people. Make sure that the, that the, the worship is taking place and setting up chairs and chopping wood and doing all the different things so that the priest could do their role in being a mediator between God and man. He, the way it's described, is he stops 
and he sees the scene. When he arrives at the place, it means he's coming and he's stopped. He arrives and he sees the man laying there. Again, no mistake, he didn't, didn't miss him. He saw him, and then he passed by on the other side. The implication is that he thought for a moment, or that he, he, he reasoned, and an act of his will decided the right response in this moment to go on the other side. He passed by on the other side. But, Jesus says, a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. Again, the picture is he walks on the road, he walks up, he sees the scene, he goes over to him, and he saw the man, and his response is very different. He has compassion. He sees the nature of this man, his situation, he sees the wounds, he sees the, it's obvious what's happened, right? It's obvious. He's been, and this happens all the time on this road. He's been robbed, he's been beaten, all of this stuff has been stolen. He's in bad shape, he's half dead and he has compassion on him, and he goes to him. That's the phrase, I think, in this, in this parable that we want to underline. He went over to him. In the same way the first two men had made a, made a decision, this man made a choice too, an act of the will. He saw, he took in the scene, he assessed it. His response was one of compassion, and his compassion led him to decide to go over to him, to go out of his way, to stop his journey, whatever his business was. I have no idea. But he stopped and put it all on hold, and he purposely chose to go over to this man. And he bandaged his wounds. He poured on olive oil and wine, cleaning the wound, trying to disinfect it. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, a hotel, and took care of him. The next day, so he spends the rest of that day and that night with him there, taking care of him, watching over him, meeting his needs. The next day, he takes out two denarii. A denarii or denarii was typically one day's wage. So two denarii would probably cover about two weeks of expenses. He took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper, and he said this, take care of him. I got I to gotta finish my journey. I got to go do my business. Take care of him, and when I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever it costs, whatever extra that you spend. Please, take care of this man. I'll be back. Jesus goes on to just throw the question now back to the expert who would ask the question. So again, Jesus is answering a question with a question. Who's my neighbor? He tells the story, and then Jesus says, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Now, it's interesting Jesus, the, the young man's question, and Jesus does this a lot, he, he doesn't necessarily answer the question that's being asked with a question. He answers the question with a question to direct the heart to the direction he wants it to go, to the way he wants it to go. And so he says, who's my neighbor? He tells us, Jesus tells a story, and then Jesus says, now who do you think was a neighbor in this story? So he really didn't answer the question that the, the expert in the law asked. Who's my neighbor? Who am I responsible to, to love like I want to be loved? Jesus says, let me tell you a story, and here's my question. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? Who is it that is seeing other people as their neighbor? So he turns it back on the man, because really, young man or old man, whatever he was, the expert in the law, what you really need to have answered is who do you see as your neighbor, I want to internalize it for you. 
And I want to give you an example of someone who, who you, wouldn't even, you wouldn't see as a neighbor because he's a Samaritan, he's from Samaria. And I want you to see how he answers that question. How did the Samaritan answer the question, who's my neighbor? Well, this word neighbor means literally somebody who's close by. Jesus defines neighbor through proximity. Jesus defines a neighbor as whoever he puts in your path. Whoever it is that's on the, on the side of the road. I, every one of us, if you've been driving for any amount of years, you had this moment. I know you have. I've had many of them. Where you see someone broken down on the side of the road, and you argue with yourself in that moment, do I have any obligation? And it, and it comes out like this. I wonder if they're safe. I wonder if they have help. You know? And for me, here's what happens. I, as I go by, I see a cell phone. And what the cell phone does for me is it alleviates me of any responsibility. Because they got a cell phone. They can call for help. Not my problems, not my neighbor. It was a little harder before cell phones. Before cell phones, there were more moments where I found myself turning back around and going back and saying, are you okay? Can I do anything for you? But what a cell phone has done for me is it's enabled me to be a little more selfish, to think a little less of neighbor, who a neighbor is in terms of proximity. Because there they are on my path, but I'm busy I got places to go, people to see, things to do. Is it safe? Is it a setup, a scam? Is there, I mean, all right, all. But we're really, what we're an, we're asking and answering is, who's my neighbor? And I want us to I want us to catch this that Jesus defines a neighbor by proximity. That is somebody he puts close to us. We think of neighbors as those who live on either side of us or in our cul-de-sac, in our courtyard. That makes sense. That's an accurate definition. Those who live close by. But when Jesus answers this man's question, who's my neighbor? He says, I want you to define neighbor as the one that I put in your path. Because I put him in the path of, this man was in the path of the priest, and he didn't see him as a neighbor. I put him in the path of the Levite, and he didn't see him as a neighbor. I put him in the path of the Samaritan, and the Samaritan displays what it looks like to be a neighbor now, the, the young man, or the, I keep saying young man, I don't know if he was young, this expert in the law, he answers uh, the question that Jesus asked, which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor? Who is it that understands what a neighbor is? Who do you think did the right behavior? Well, what are you going to say in this moment? Uh, I think the priest uh, did the right thing, you know, because he, he was late for worship, and so, you know, he had to get, right? There's, remember, there's a crowd. Remember, this is public. He stood up. He drew attention to himself. He's having this dialogue with Jesus, but lots of people are listening in, and they hear Jesus tell this story, and they might be conflicted about, well, why would the priest not help? He's a priest. Why would the, well, I would expect a Levite to help. A Samaritan help? You know, sure, maybe that's going through their heads, but when they hear Jesus' voice say to the man, who do you think, who of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers, the man that was beat up and left for dead, who really displayed love. And he said what you and I would have said, whether we believe it or not. Well, the one who showed mercy to him. You see, he can't even say Samaritan, can he? It would have been legitimate to say, wow, the Samaritan, the one that I didn't think was my neighbor, was a neighbor to this man. But remember, he's trying to justify his, his lifestyle, the way he's living, his relationship to the law. So he says, well, of course, it's the one who showed mercy to him. And Jesus looks at this expert in the law, and he says, go and do the same. 
Here's my answer to your question. Go and do the same. Love the Lord your God with all that you are, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor the way that you want to be loved. And I'll just help you understand that your neighbor is the one that I put in your path. If we believe God is sovereign, if we believe God is even sovereign in this moment right now with all that is happening, then we also have to embrace his sovereignty when he puts someone in our path. When he puts someone in the house next to us, somebody new moves in. <laughs> we, we even need to, to embrace his sovereignty when he puts us back into our own house with our family. God's sovereign there with my wife and my kids and my dog and everyone else. We have to embrace his sovereignty when he puts someone in our path. And God says, this is your neighbor. We don't have time, but I'll just encourage you to maybe jot down a few thoughts. There's a whole lot of things missing here that we would have put in there to define neighbor. I, I hope you're tracking with me. God didn't put, they have to meet this requirement, they have to look like this, they have to act like this, they have to talk like this, they have to treat you like this. All that's missing. He says, your neighbor is the one that I put in your path. Here's, here's my thought that has convicted my heart, and I share it with you this morning. We only have to get one thing right. I sent out an email, and some of you have been asking, what's the one thing? This is the one thing. We've got to get one thing right. We have to love God more than anyone or anything else. We have to love God. And I, you, you can fill in some here, but I thought about the other gods little g gods the other gods that we love health the older you get i'm telling you that god gets gets a bigger voice in your life i want i want to worship at the the throne of health good health because it affects so much do i love god more than the god of health what about comfort huh as i get older that even more so the god of comfort or the god of safety or the god of security or the god of freedom or the god of my rights aren't necessarily bad things but they become destructive when they take the place of the one true god the one thing that i got to get right the one thing that we got to get right and i and i mean this intentionally in this moment we can ask this every day and every season but right now in this moment that we're in we got to get this right we got to love god more than anything else now he says we have to love others like we want to be loved. And we sometimes see that as two things. But for God, it's just one thing. It's just one thing. You read, you read 1 John in chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. In fact, in chapter 4 of 1 John, he says, If you love God, you say you love God and you hate your brother, you are a liar. See, God can't separate those two. He doesn't separate those two. You love me, then love people. You love God with all that you are, then you'll see that man in the ditch as your neighbor and you'll love him the way that you want to be loved. You'll do whatever it takes to show him love and to care for him because I put him in your path. See, for God, this is one thing, to love God more than anything or anyone else and to love others like we want to be loved. Satan wins every time we love something more than God. Satan wins in the moment that I love something more than God. Satan wins every time we love someone more than God. Satan wins every time in the moments that you and I choose to love something more than God 
or someone more than God? What's the one thing that I got to get right? The one thing that I got to get right right now, right here, as a husband, as a father, as a pastor, as a friend, as a citizen of, of California. The one thing I got to get right is I got to love God more than anything else with all that I am. And I got to love the neighbor that God puts in my path. That's the one thing that God's asking of us. It's the one thing that he's always asked of us. Do you find it interesting that this quote is from Deuteronomy and Leviticus? How many thousands of years ago was that written? God's expectations have not changed. Jesus coming and dying on the cross, living among us and dying on the cross, being buried and risen from the dead, and now calling us to follow him as, as his disciples, he affirms he's asking the same thing. I got one thing. Well, how do I have eternal life? How am I right with God? How do I have a relationship with, with my creator? How do I deal with my sin and my mess and, and enjoy relationship with God? Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor the way that you want to be, lit, to be loved. One thing. This guy is a, an expert in the law. He's thinking in terms of what have I got to do? What do I got to do? What do I got to do? All the stuff that I got to do. And Jesus just points him back to the law and says, you'll find it there. Yep, you found it. I agree with you. Just love God more than anything else in all aspects of life. That includes loving your neighbor as you want to be loved. This, this scene, this scenario plays out. This one thing is revealed. I, one of the things that I really, I don't, I, well, I don't know if this is even legit to even hope for this, but one of the things that I would love to have access to is the conversations that Jesus and his disciples have while they're traveling, particularly after one of these kind of moments. After the feeding the 5,000, after the walk, him walking on the water, and they're on the other side of the shore. We're given little bits and glimpses, but there's three years of this going on. And here's another one of those moments where then Luke says in verse 38, while they were traveling, and by the way, from this point on, Jesus, Luke interprets this and, and lays this out, that Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. Jesus is making his way to his trial, his um, execution on the cross, his death and his burial and his resurrection. He's making his way to his triumphal entry as a part of it, too. But Luke uses this phrase, they're traveling. These are like the segues between the scenes that he's, that he's recorded for Theophilus and for us. And so th this happens with this guy. I don't know if he sits down. If he, I don't know how. That, we're just told that's the end of it. Jesus tells him what he tells him, and then now all of a sudden they're traveling. And as they're traveling, Jesus enters a village, verse 38. He enters a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home she had a sister named mary who also sat at the lord's feet don't miss that also sat at the lord's feet so the picture here and these are friends of jesus he comes to bethsaida bethany and this is where they lived martha mary and lazarus and he comes through their village and martha says jesus jesus come 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 hungry come stay with us come i'll i'll, I'll take care of you come and so he does. He comes into her home. She welcomes him into her home. And she had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet. So the picture is Jesus comes in, and Martha and Mary don't, man, we always want to take sides, right? We're a Martha or a Mary. Well, most of us are in between, the both. And even if you're strictly one or the other, can't we all just get along, Martha and Mary? Martha and Mary are sitting at the feet of Jesus. Notice that this is how Luke paints it. She had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet. So they're sitting at the Lord's feet, and they're listening to what he said. 
They're listening to Jesus teach. However, Martha is distracted. See, now you know who the Mar- now you know if you're a Martha. They're sitting at his feet. There's a group of people there. They're in her home. I think Martha's so excited that Jesus is in her home. She is really strong on hospitality and meeting people's needs. And this is so cool. This is so exciting. We're going to have Jesus for supper. You know, join us for supper. And, there's, and Jesus is teaching. What's he teaching? I don't know. I like to think he's teaching about this young, young, this expert in the law that he just met. I want to tell you about this guy and this question he had. And don't know. Maybe. He's teaching, he's talking to them, he's speaking, and they're sitting at his feet, they're sitting on the floor, they're reclining, and they're listening to what he says. What a sweet moment. What a sweet moment. But Martha can't help herself, because (laughs) people want to eat, and I got to get this prepared, and I got to, I got to get the dishes going, and I got to get my help set up, and I got to, we got to set the table, and we got to, oh, there's so many things to do. I'm married to a Martha, and all, you know, what to me is like, hey, we're going to have a few of our kids over today to celebrate Mother's Day. Woohoo! That's exciting. Yeah, we're going to barbecue. End of, end of thought process in my head. Can hardly wait. Meanwhile, my wife, who's going to, who's, well, is there propane in the thing? I don't know. Uh, feels heavy, fine. You know, what about this? What about, and she just, she wants to make sure everything's set up. Martha is distracted by her many tasks. They're good tasks. She came up. <laughs> I think the picture here is that she, um, excuse me, Jesus, that was really good what you just said. I'm, I wrote that down in my journal. However, it, it paints the picture that she kind of interrupts him. She's distracted, and I think she sat there as long as she could until she couldn't contain it anymore. And she says, well, who, 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 don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Now, this means one or two things. She got up and left to do it, or she's still sitting there, and she's, we do this, she's thinking that everybody else is thinking the same thing she is. And she's looking at her sister, judging her. Oh, she knows we got to do stuff, and she don't care. One of those two scenarios, and she just, it just comes out, and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister's left me to serve alone? Tell her to give me a hand. Tell her to help me. She's my sister. Now, if I'm Jesus, I say, well, who invited me into your house? Oh, that was me. Now, Jesus, thanks. Be thankful. Jesus and I are not the same. Praise God. The Lord answers her. Now, my generation, look at your Bible. My generation, what do you see there? Marsha, Marsha, right? And if you don't know what that means, then you're the wrong generation. Martha, Martha, Martha. Oh, Martha. I think think the tone of his voice is sweet. I think it's gentle because who he is. Martha. And again, he knows, right? He knows everything that's going on. He knows the tension. He knows the distract. He knows all of it. He says, Martha, Martha, you're worried. You're worried and upset about many things. You're worried. You're concerned. You're upset. You're, you're troubled, literally. You're troubled about many things. But here it is. One thing is necessary. One thing is needed. There's one thing that matters above all else, and Mary has made the right choice. Mary has chosen that one thing, and it will not be taken from her. So in the, the scene here, what is he saying? He's saying Mary has chosen the one thing that's necessary right now. Not that I don't care about food, Martha. Not that I don't care about the tasks. Those are good tasks. But right now, before any of those things happen, 
what needs to be clear first is there's one thing that's needed. We need to sit at the feet of Jesus. We need to love him. We need to love we need to love him more than our tasks. If you didn't write that down before as one of the gods that gets in the way of loving him the most, maybe you need to add that. Your honeydew list, your task, your job, what the things that are are important, the thing changing the oil in the car, getting the lawn, I mean there's it's an endless li- uh, and good things, right? Calling people, serving people, reaching out to help people. There's a long list of good tasks. But he says, Martha, the problem is you're worried and you're upset. You're, you're anxious. The word, that first word he uses there is you're anxious. <sighs> How's this going to happen? And when your mind and heart are filled with worry, with anxiety, and it's troubled by all that has to happen, you're going to miss the one thing that is needed right now. Martha, I need you just to join your sister for a few more minutes. I don't know if it's a time thing as much as it, as it is a, Martha, I need you to get your, your heart and mind aligned with me. I need you to see me, Jesus, as the one thing that matters most. And I have an opportunity right now to speak and to share with you, keep, just to be with you and you to be with me. Let me ask you, are you distracted by all that is going on around you? I'll I'll confess I have been. I have some moments worse than others. Jesus is asking us, are you distracted by the tasks, distracted by the, the circumstances that are around you? Are you distracted by all that is going on inside of you? See, we can be distracted by the external, and we can be distracted by the internal. And the reality is some of us are better at hiding the internal, but it doesn't mean we're any less distracted than the one who's distracted by the external, the tasks. See, the outward external tasks that Martha knew needed to be done eventually came home and, and, and began to live inside of her. And it distracted her from this sweet moment where Jesus is there in their home, sitting together around a table on the floor and just being in his presence. How do I discover this one thing? How do I get aligned with this one thing? Let me just suggest something to you. We need to block out all the other voices, the external and the internal. We have to take what steps are necessary to turning off the TV. It's laying down the task list. It's, it can be different things for different people. It's why we talk all the time about you need quiet time with God. You need time in his word. Because here's what you're going to hear. If you intentionally sit down at the feet of Jesus and say, okay, remind me again, fill my heart and mind with the one thing that is needed. Here's what you're going to hear. I believe this with all my heart. You're going to hear him say to you that I am your one thing. Everything else will, will fit in place once I am your one thing. I believe you're also going to hear this, that we will hear this. You will hear, we will hear him say to us, you, Kurt, are my one thing. The joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He did that for me. The one thing that gave him joy in the most horrific set of circumstances I can try to imagine, being crucified, the joy that filled his heart was me and you. When we quiet the other voices and we say, God, I just need to be realigned with the one thing, you're going to hear him say, I, Jesus, am your one thing. And you're going to hear him say, you are my one thing. It's what I died for. 
what I love more than anything else. For God so loved this world that he gave his son. For God so loved you and me that he gave us his son. There's a, there's a sign above my bed, a plaque, I guess, that Becky put up there. And I, and it's <laughs> I want to be clear. I'm, 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 I want to tell you about this, not because I that I fulfill this, but it was a reminder. It's been a reminder to me this week as I've been studying for this, and it was a reminder this morning as I left the house. The sign says this. It's right above our headboard. It says, always kiss me goodnight. Always kiss me goodnight. So the one thing, the one thing that I need to do every night is to give my wife a kiss before we fall off to sleep. Now, you say, well, that, that, what's the big deal? Well, here, here's the big deal, because this is how it plays out in... I lay down in bed, and we're doing stuff, and I'm checking my messages and putting my alarm on and different things, and my mind immediately goes to the task of the next day. When I wake up tomorrow, let me check my calendar one more time, you know, oh, wait, I forgot to put the dog inside. Wait, I forgot to, you know, and, and just all this stuff. And before I know it, we're both. And that happens night after night after night. The night that this is obeyed is the night when I have clear in my mind there's one thing right now in this moment. It's the love of my life that's laying next to me, my wife, this covenant between us, that we don't let the sun go down upon our wrath. We don't end this day without affirming our love and commitment to each other. Even the simple expression of a physical touch, a kiss, lip touching lip to say, I love you, I'm yours. We'll wake up tomorrow morning and we'll live tomorrow together in unity as husband and wife. It's the one thing. It's the one thing that should happen. But more often than not, it's the one thing that doesn't happen. Does that make sense? Take that and apply it to your life. What's the one thing that Jesus is asking us to do? I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to um, get a piece of paper. Paper looks like this. Okay, If you don't remember what that looks like. Take out a piece of paper, and I want you to draw a line down the middle of that paper. Take one of the packets from your kids, or not use all of them. Take the crossword one. Take it from then. Turn it over to black, get a blank size. Take a line, put it down the middle of this paper, and on the right side, write everything that's on your heart and mind right now. Just start writing them down. Everything that's on your heart and mind right now. All the tasks, all the concerns, all the everything that comes to mind. Just let it vomit out of you, and put it on, don't all over people. Put it on the paper. Write everything down that's in your head and your heart right now. Just start doing it. Just writing. For most of us, keep doing it. That will fill up. And then on the left side, I want you to write the one thing right in the middle of that whole rectangle shape. You've got a list on the right of all these things that are on your heart and your mind right now. Good, bad, and ugly. Everything that you're carrying. And on the left, right in the middle, I want you to write the one thing that you believe God is asking you to do right now. For most of us, it's going to look something like this. I just need to sit at the feet of Jesus. I need to acknowledge that there's a God that I love a little more than him right now. And I want that God to be put where it belongs. And I want to love you, Jesus, more than anything else. I want to love you with all that I am. I don't want to miss this moment that you have for me right now. I don't want to miss what you're saying to me. I don't want to miss what you have. You know my heart, my heart and my mind. You know everything that's going, everything I'm writing on the right side. You know it. I just need to be reminded. I need to see it. But you already know it. 
what you're asking me to do is just sit at your feet. To acknowledge the gods that have gotten in the way. To acknowledge the person, the thing, whatever it is. And put you right there on the left. Don't touch the things on the right until you've done the one thing on the left. It's good. To, it, it's therapeutic to write them all down. It really is. Get them all on there. But don't move on any of them. Don't touch any of them until you have first done the one thing on the left. Everything on the right. Here's what happens. You give yourself to the one thing on the left. And as you're doing that, I wish we had disappearing ink and the Holy Spirit would do this. But some things will just begin to disappear. Really what will happen is you'll just put a line through them. It doesn't make any sense now. Why am I worrying about that? I don't really need to do that. Oh, I do, I do want to do this. And I do, oh, that's my neighbor. There's my neighbor. There, there's loving God. And the right takes on a whole new appearance when I've done the one thing on the left. Don't touch the things on the right until you've done the one thing on the left. Let me share this last thought with you. From a biography by a lady named Rosaria Butterfield, she lived uh, a life far from God, and, and this is her biography of coming to faith, uh, an English professor's journey into Christian faith, the secret thoughts of an unlikely convert. She says this, she says, making a life commitment to Christ was not merely a philosophical shift. It was not a one-step one process. It did not involve rearranging the surface prejudices and fickle loyalties of my life. Conversion didn't fit my life. Conversion overhauled, overhauled my soul and personality. It was arduous, arduous and intense. I experienced with great depth the power and authority of God in my life. In it, I learned, and am still learning, how to love God with all my heart, soul, strength, and mind. When you die to yourself, you have nothing from your past to use as clay out of which to shape your future. The one thing that needs to shape our future is that one thing on the left. See, we, we're, we're so shaped and we're so identified by those things on the right. I don't know if you know that. Some of you do. Some of you may not. If you've got all this anxiety and worry over here, guess what? People know that you're an anxious, worrisome person. If you've got a bunch of tasks over here, people know that you're a workaholic and that you, if there's a bunch of fun and pleasure over here, things that you just want to do, things that have been taken away in this, in this season and you want to get back to doing those things, and that's what pours out of you, people pretty much know that. thing that should shape our identity, shape who we are, that others see and experience whenever they interact with us is the one thing on the left. My identity should be just consumed. It should be, this is what people know to be true of me, is that I love God more than anything else, anyone else. And I'm going to love people the way I want to be loved. And the people that I love are the ones that he drops in my path. Don't touch the things on the right until you've done the one thing on the left. Would you allow me to pray? I know it might be chaotic or noisy in your space where you're at, but as best you can, just join me for a moment. Father, thank you for the truth of your word, the truth of your word that overhauls our soul, that overhauls our mind and our heart so that we can see Jesus clearly and so that 
we can hear clearly from Jesus to live out what you've called us to be and to do. Give us clarity of the one thing that you're asking of us right now. And may everything else that we say and do grow out of that one thing. Sitting at your feet, Jesus, hearing your voice, being reminded who we are to you and what it looks like right now, right here, to be your follower, your disciple, to love you, Jesus, more than anything else. Father, I thank you for your spirit that takes this truth and helps us to live it, makes it possible for us to live it. Would you draw our hearts and minds to you now as we worship together? In Jesus' name, amen.